Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, I really do not intend to make a speech tonight, and not in the usual sense of the word. I do not intend to give you an hour of entertainment. To me, the matter for the purpose of which I have come here is serious, and too serious to make it a matter of entertainment. I do not care whether you agree or do not agree. I do not care whether you enjoy or do not enjoy what I have to say. I say once more, I'm serious. And the matter of which I'm speaking is extremely serious more so than it was in 1924. I remember that almost 30 years ago I also spoke in doom. At that time in the old rickety town hall. And then I spoke particularly on the three points which the Christian Reformed Churches adopted in 1924. Little I surmised in those days uh, that I would see the time when it would be necessary uh, really to speak on the same subject now against those uh, that already have departed from the Protestant Reformed Truth and from the Protestant Reformed Church. That is simply a fact. You can camouflage it you could talk about it and gossip about it. You could slander and lie as many of the opposition do. But what I told you just a moment ago is simply a fact, nothing less. And therefore, because the matter is extremely serious, especially to me personally, as you can easily understand. I have not come here for the purpose of entertaining you. Rather, I want to talk to you face to face 
and straight from the shoulder. My subject has been announced. Uh, briefly, it is our present situation as privacy upon churches, or our present controversy in the light of the history of the church. Uh, that is itself a very important subject. You could say many things about it. Understand when I speak of our present situation or our present controversy in the light of history. I'm referring not to the history of the world and not to history in general, but particularly to the history of the church. And again, my subject demands, as you will presently understand, uh, that I do not even speak on our controversy in the light of the history of the church in general. Uh, but I intend to speak on the light of the history of the church from the point of view of its doctrinal and dogmatical development. One more repetition. I must speak on the subject in the light of the history of the church from a doctrinal point of view, particularly in the light of the history of the doctrine of God and man of the doctrine of predestination on the one hand and of the depravity and corruption of the natural man on the other. And that that is important is not because we view the history of that doctrine uh, from man's point of view of its history of doctrine and the history of the doctrine of predestination and the total depravity of man from the viewpoint of the fact that the church developed those doctrines but rather from the viewpoint of the fact that the Holy Spirit led the churches into all the truth. That, of course, is important. Uh, what we must know and what we must be sure of tonight is where is the church? That is important. Where is the church? That's really the only important question that we can possibly face. That question is also fundamentally important for our present situation. Where is the church? The answer is, the church is where Christ is. 
That's where the church is. Apart from Christ, there is no church. Where Christ is, there is the church. And further the answer is there. The church is where Christ is by the guidance of the Holy Spirit who leads the church in all the truth. Whatever the Holy Spirit is, whatever the Holy Spirit guides in all the truth, there is the church and nowhere else. And therefore, we want to know tonight whether the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, has guided us as Protestant Reformed Church into the truth of God's sovereign grace and of his everlasting covenant. That question is the practical purpose to answer. To answer that question is the practical purpose of my lecture. You know our controversy, most of you do anyway, our controversy is without a doubt exactly concerned with the question of God's sovereign predestination and man's total depravity. It's exactly concerned with the question concerning God and man. That question has been determined by the guidance of the Holy Spirit throughout the history of the Church, almost from its beginning. And therefore, when I speak tonight and talk to you tonight, I will point out especially four things. In the first place, that all history shows, that is, the history of the church from the doctrine of one of you, all history shows that the doctrine of predestination is most fundamental. In the second place, all history shows, too, that there are but very few moments a very few periods in the history of the church where the church stood 100% and four square purely on the basis of that doctrine. In the third place, I want to point out to you that the opponents of this doctrine from the very beginning always have used the very same arguments which they still use today. And finally, I want to issue a final word of warning that therefore we, as Protestant Reformed Churches, must watch. First of all, then, I want to say a few words about our present controversy in the light, of course, of the history 
of the Church of All Ages. I want you to know that it is my firm conviction that just as in 1924 the Christian Reformed Church departed from the Reformed truth when the Synod of Kalamazoo adopted the three points, so those that now apostatize and depart from the Protestant Reformed Churches corrupt the same Reformed truth. In 1924, the first point was briefly, that is, in connection with its proof that the preaching of the gospel is a well-meant offer of salvation on the part of God to all that hear. That is the essence of the first point. The preaching of the gospel is a well-meant offer of salvation on the part of God to all, to all that hear the gospel. Today, those that do not care to walk the same way of the truth with us proclaim the very same first point only in a worse form. 1924 spoke of a general well-meant offer of salvation to all that hear. Today, those that depart from us, that do not, do not want to be Protestant form anymore, although they still claim the name, preach that the promise that God promises to every one of the hearers salvation if they believe. In other words, in 1924, it was a general offer on the part of God. Today, it is worse, for it is a general promise. A promise, besides, to every one of the years, head for head and soul for soul, on the part of God, on condition on condition of faith, on condition of belief. That is the doctrine that was condemned happily. I'm very glad of it, because it would have ruined the Protestant Reformed Churches if it had not been done. That was the doctrine that was condemned by our consistory and by the classes east of the Protestant Reformed Churches. And therefore, you must clearly understand the issue. 1924 spoke of a general well-meaning of 1953, 52, and 51, and today, in the Protestant Reformed Churches, the doctrine was in 
attempted to be introduced that God promises. Now, surely, a promise of God is, without any doubt, more than an offer. If I say to you, God promises to every one of you salvation, that stands uh, fast as the mountains. Besides, you will also understand uh, that uh, God promises in his grave. God cannot promise anything except in his grave. If I say to you, God promises to every one of you salvation, that means, of course, that God is gracious to every one of you, without any doubt. That was also the purpose of 1924, of course. 1924 meant to, to substantiate the doctrine of common grace by proof from the confessions, and when they couldn't find anything else, they referred to the preaching of the gospel, as it was meant offer of salvation to everyone as a proof of common grace. That is also the case today. And that only, you must remember, that uh, this promise of God is conditional. Conditional if we believe. So that uh, belief is a condition to the promise of God. It's not so that the promise of God includes the promise of, uh, of faith. It's not so that God promises faith and therefore also promises the whole of salvation. Oh no, God promises salvation. That is, God promises every one of you eternal life. If you believe, you must fulfill the condition. That's the whole thing, it's the condition. And therefore, the first statement that was made from the pulpit of the first Protestant form church in Grand Rapids and which was condemned by our consistory, condemned by the classes east, uh, simply states that God is gracious to everyone that hears the gospel and promises them salvation on condition of faith. General, conditional promise. No one can dispute that. That is certainly the case. Moreover, what was preached in that first sermon was worse than that. Worse than that. No Protestant reform man could ever speak the way uh, that particular minister uh, uh, preached from the pulpit of the first church in Grand Rapids. He said, uh, among other things, you have nothing to do with predestination. You have nothing to do with election and reprobation. You must believe. Or, according to another version of that same statement, the gospel has nothing to do with the... Uh, uh, question of predestination. A question of faith. Moreover, he said, some of you have the Protestant form to the lapel of your coat. It's not a question whether you're Protestant form. And so on and so forth. All that was preached from the pulpit of a Protestant form church. Now then, uh, that is the first statement. Uh, that statement, personally, I did not hear. And personally, I was not involved for more than a year in that whole first part of the controversy. It had nothing to do with it. I didn't hear the statement. I hardly ever attended the consistory meeting. 
I didn't protest against anything at all at the time, but others protested, and the protests were on the table of the consistory until finally a second statement was made. And that second statement was this. Our act of conversion is a prerequisite to enter the, the kingdom of God. That was worse yet. Then I was in church, and I told the minister that preached it uh, that I could shake hands with him and that I would protect. I did. Why? Our act of conversion, our act of conversion, a prerequisite to enter the kingdom of God, our act of conversion, a condition, as also was said, to enter the kingdom of God, that is not only Arminianism, that is really pure modernism. If our act of conversion must be before a prerequisite, we enter the kingdom of God, then the entrance into the kingdom of God depends on man alone. Don't you see that? That was all. That was the second statement. That second statement, too, was condemned by the consistory, was finally condemned by the class. The result is that that person ministered was deposed or suspended together with some elders, and the result is, too, that a schism was created in our churches because there are, there are others already that agreed with that corrupt doctrine and supported it. That's the truth. Now, let's look at that a moment. I'll come back to this. But late, uh, let's look at that a moment in the light of the history of the doctrine of the church of all ages, especially the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of the depravity of man. You know, uh, the question of predestination was not the first question uh, that arose in the church. That was not the first question. Uh, the church was busy in the first uh, two, three centuries, and even part of the fall, with the doctrine concerning God, concerning the Trinity, and the doctrine concerning Christ, concerning the two natures of Christ and concerning the person of Christ, and concerning the question of the relation between the natures and the person of Jesus Christ. That was first. Uh, but in the fourth century and the first part of the fifth century of the history of the Church, the doctrine of predestination and 
in connection with the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of the total depravity of man was developed and refinished. The names that are connected with the development of this particular phase of the truth are two. On the one hand, there was Pelagius, a British monk, and on the other hand, there was the name of Augustine, a bishop in the Church Catholic. Not the Catholic, not the Roman Catholic Church, but there was no Roman Catholic Church as yet, but the Church Catholic. Now, Pelagius, must remember, as is often the case, Pelagius was a very moral man, a good man, externally, who walked a more, in a moral way and a more, uh, according to moral standards. He was a good man. Everybody liked Pelagius. Uh, better than Augustine. And because, perhaps, he was outwardly a decent man, a decently moral man, uh, Pelagius did not have at any time a deep consciousness of sin. And so Pelagius began to teach that man still has a free will, uh, that he has a will to do both good and evil, although, according to Pelagius, circumstances and the environment and the world is not in favor of the good moral choice. Uh, man is inclined to imitate and because he has evil examples all around him he is very easily inclined to do evil but that does not affect uh, the real nature of the will as to his will he is free to do either good or evil he even said Pelagius even taught that a man could so fulfill the law. And he said there were in the old dispensation people uh, that so fulfilled the law uh, that they were worthy of everlasting life, even without Christ. Uh, but he says grace, uh, grace and the grace of Christ can help a man to choose the good. That was the Pelagian doctrine. Augustine had an altogether different life, and so he developed an altogether different conception. Augustine was very deeply conscious of being a sinner. A sin troubled him. If you read his confessions, you find again and again uh, that he disemburdens uh, his soul and cries about his sinful state and his sinful condition. That was Augustine. 
But when Augustine faced Pelagius, he did not immediately turn directly to the doctrine of total depravity, but he looked more deeply into the matter. He saw immediately that as soon as you say something about man, you must say something about God. And as soon as you say that man is good or free to do either good or evil, you must deny the sovereign grace of God. Then God is no longer sovereign. And so, Augustine, over against Pelagius, instead of directly developing the doctrine of total depravity, developed the doctrine of predestination. That's what Augustine did. He emphasized, he emphasized that man is nothing. That man is worse than nothing because he is a sinner. He emphasized that even the so-called virtues of the natural man are nothing but glittering sins. And therefore, since man is absolutely helpless in regard to the question of salvation, he must be utterly dependent upon the sovereign grace and sovereign choice of the Most High. And so, uh, Augustine came to the doctrine of predestination. And that's what he developed. Over against Pelagius, he emphasized that God is sovereign in salvation, uh, that it is entirely up to him to reject as well as to elect Election and approbation were emphasized by Augustine in the pure sense of the word. Really, after Augustine, although the question of supra and infra had not yet been uh, brought into discussion, of course, nevertheless, I dare say that after Augustine, there was really no essential development in regard to the doctrine of predestination. That was the period of the 4th and the first part of the 5th century for in the, at the Synod of Ephesus in 431 that question was officially settled. Then we take a jump. Uh, I, I come back to Augustine later on because uh, it wasn't very long that the church remained pure in regard to the doctrine of predestination. It soon departed, uh, but uh, from Augustine we must take a big jump. Uh, from Augustine you have the development of the church in, in uh, the direction of what is soon called the Roman Catholic Church, and the Roman Catholic Church became essentially, and still is essentially, semi-Pelagian. But the next big figure is Calvin. Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1565, uh, uh, Calvin developed the doctrine of predestination once more. 
in his institutes, in his commentaries, and finally in his Calvin's Calvinism. You know, it's very striking that also the case with Augustine, and that's again the case with Calvin, and I dare say that is the case with me, uh, that the more the doctrine of election and reprobation is attacked, the stronger those that maintain the doctrine become. I dare say, if I had not uh, had the personal history which I had, first of all, in my first congregation, uh, which was really entirely Armenian and Pelagian, my first congregation was Holland 40 Street, and that congregation was not informed at all. Uh, but if I had not had that experience opposition from the very beginning, of my ministry, from the very start of my ministry in Holland 40 Street, even to such an extent that after one year of my ministry they threatened to take my church away and make it a Presbyterian church. If that had not, not been the case, I would never have developed the truth concerning election and reprobation uh, as strongly and as clearly as I did. That is God's problems. The same is true of Augustine. Augustine, uh, if you trace the history of his development, also developed ever more strongly. The more he was opposed by men like Julian and like Faustus and others, uh, the more he was opposed uh, to the, doctor, the doctrine of predestination, the stronger he became, and the more he developed that same doctrine. The same is true of Calvin. You compare, Calvin was strong. Calvin was strong also in his institutes. His institutes he wrote when he was a young man, a young man of about 26, uh, just a, a shortly out of the Roman Catholic Church. He wrote the institutes as a young man, and it's surprising how Calvin's clearly and strongly developed in the first volume of those institutes, the first book of the institutes, the doctrine of predestination. Nevertheless, you will find in other parts of Calvin's books, like his commentaries and so on, you'll find that there are expressions that you would not condone. But at the end of his life, when he was opposed by men like Georges and Pigiers who attacked him on that same doctrine of predestination. Calvin became stronger and stronger because of the opposition. And so uh, Calvin really redeveloped and re-represented uh, the doctrine of Augustine. Time and again in his book, he refers back to Augustine. There was another moment that the doctrine of predestination was presented purely and as strongly as possible. Then, of course, was the next the next period was enacted in the old country. And that was at the time of the Synod of Dordrecht, 16, 18, and 19. 
50 years after Calvin died, 50, 60 years, there was opposition against that doctrine. Oh, it was smooth. It was presented in a very subtle way uh, so that uh, uh, many in the old country did not understand that the doctrine of predestination was attacked. You know, in the old country, when Arminius first uh, preached, uh, there was in his congregation in Amsterdam only one man that caught on that he didn't preach the truth. Only one man in that congregation. And when the uh, uh, Arminianism developed gradually, and then uh, uh, gradually Arminianism spread in the old country, and when they finally uh, understood a little of uh, the doctrine of Arminius, the people in the old country said, what's the trouble with that man? There's nothing wrong with it. He says the same thing as we always did. Arminius preached uh, unchangeable and sovereign election as well as ended covenant. Arminius preached that uh, the natural man is totally depraved and cannot do any good of himself, and so on and so forth. And they said that the old country was wrong with Arminius. There's nothing wrong with the doctrine. Uh, but in the meantime, Arminius opposed the uh, doctrine of Augustine and of Calvin until finally the churches, at least many leaders of the churches, became awake and opposed it. Men like Homaris and Bogerman and others opposed it until they finally succeeded to organize the famous Synod of Dordrecht, which had representatives from not only from the Netherlands, but also from other parts of the world. Now, what I want to say is this, that the doctrine of predestination is fundamental, is a fundamental truth, is evident from the very canons of Dordrecht. Why were there five canons? Why was not one canon? The canon concerning the sovereign election and reprobation sufficient. I tell you why. Because, beloved, the remonstrance in 1610 had proposed five articles of themselves. Five articles. In those five articles, they did not, that was in Cholda in 1610, where the remonstrants uh, gathered and proposed those five articles of the remonstrants, as they are called. Uh, we must remember uh, that uh, the doctrine of predestination, as I said, is so fundamental that the moment you speak of predestination, you also speak of many other things. You cannot help that. So, the articles of the remonstrance, first of all, spoke of predestination. That was the first chapter, uh, the first uh, article. 
in that first article, they, they said that God, by an unchangeable and sovereign election, uh, chose those that believe unto salvation. That was the that was the language approximately. I don't have it with me, but that was approximately the language. God chose those that believe sovereignly, un- unchangeable and unchangeably unto salvation from eternity. The second, however, was the doctrine concerning the redemption of Christ. Of course, don't you see? The moment you say something about uh, God and about uh, grace and about election, you must say something about Christ and about atonement. That was the second article. Thirdly, the moment you say something about Christ, you must say something about coming to him and about the incapability of man to come to him or of the willingness of man to come to him or unwillingness of man to come to him. And so you had a, you had a third article. The third article concerned the condition of man, the condition of the natural man. And the fourth article concerned the conversion of man. And the final article concerned the perseverance of the saints. Those five articles were connected. And the doctrine of predestination is fundamental to them all. The moment you say something about predestination, you must say something about the atonement of Christ. The moment you say something about predestination, you must say something about man. The moment you say something about predestination, you must say something about conversion and regeneration and about the perseverance of the sin. So the synod of Dordrecht did too. And they opposed the Arminian doctrine. Briefly, they opposed it by saying that election of God is unconditional, absolutely unconditional, as the Arminians had proposed the condition. So they maintained that the doctrine of election is unconditional. And you understand, of course, beloved, you must understand this too. Uh, the moment you say that the doctrine of election is unconditional election, you must maintain that the application of salvation is unconditional too. You can never, uh, can never get out of that. You know, the people, uh, the, the men that uh, departed from us, that don't want to be Prasniform anymore, but that still claim to be Prasniform, they say, oh, we believe unconditional election. Uh, there's, no con- there's no condition in election. Oh, no. Uh, election is unconditional. But, did they say, but, but, and there's the but. But, uh, there's a condition as soon as you speak of the application of salvation. Then there are conditions. But don't you see that that's absolutely impossible? And that's also contrary to the very canons of Dordrecht. The moment you say Election is unconditional. You must say that the application of election is unconditional. For, as you read in Ephesians 1 verse 3, which says that uh, we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he had chosen us. From before the foundation of the world, don't you see? 
God has blessed us with our spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That is, he has blessed us with regeneration. He has blessed us with the calling. He has blessed us with conversion. He has blessed us with faith. He has blessed us with repentance. He has blessed us with being engrafted to Christ. According as he has chosen us, the application of the blessings of salvation is in harmony with the doctrine of election. You must either speak of unconditional election and then speak of unconditional salvation, unconditional conversion, unconditional calling, unconditional faith, absolutely unconditional, all gifts of God, or you must say, election is conditional, conditioned upon faith, and therefore the application of election is also conditional. That is Arminian. And that Arminian doctrine is implied, no, definitely expressed. And that first statement that was made from the pulpit of the first Protestant from Joseph Graham Don't you see? God promised the salvation to every one of you if you believe. If you believe. Conditional, a conditional promise presupposes a conditional election. Our father saw that. And let me say this. Because our Father saw that so clearly, beloved, you'll never find any conditions, uh, or even the term condition of the idea of condition in our confessions. On the contrary, the condemned it. The confessions condemned it. I will not take time to read it. I can read it. Uh, just take, uh, just let me read, let me read one, one little instance. Uh, uh, from uh, from uh, the uh, Armenian errors. And 1b2, that is, the first chapter of the canon, the second article of the, re- of the rejection of errors. You see there, you read there. There are various kinds of election. That's what the Armenians teach. There are various kinds of election of God unto eternal life. The one general and indefinite, the other particular and indefinite. And that the latter, that is, the particular and definite uh, election is either incomplete, revocable, non-decisive, and conditional, complete, irrevocable, decisive, and absolute. You know what that means? That means, beloved, that the, 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 uh, I mean, he's left it all up to man. Election was all left up to man. Uh, God made a uh, conditional decree, that's all, a conditional decree of election. So that God said, I choose, as it says in the first article of the Remonstrance, I choose those that are willing to believe. Condition. If you believe, I choose you unto eternal life. And so, if you believe and and obey and persevere, that's all included, if you believe and persevere uh, unto the end, then uh, I choose you unto eternal life. Election is all dependent on man. But 
those that uh, now say uh, that uh, uh, they still believe in uh, in election, uh, they say, oh yes, we, be- we believe in unconditional election, but uh, the application uh, that uh, of that election is as conditional. And that's impossible. According as he had chosen us, so he had blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. That was the meaning of But what I mean to emphasize is the doctrine of election and reprobation is absolutely fundamental for all the rest of the doctrine of salvation. Well, after that you had, uh, oh, you had a little uh, time of uh, flourishing after the Synod of God, not very long. And then you had uh, a period, long period of dead confessionalism. And finally you had again the modernism and Arminianism because Arminianism is the same as modernism. And in the old country finally had the, the separation of 1834 under the cock. And very striking, the first sermon which the cock preached was Ephesians 1.8. By grace are you saved. And that uh, through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The same story again. Again, there was a little awakening in 1886 under Dr. Kerber, whose first uh, period was certainly a period of reformed awakening. And of course, that all went to this country. Uh, and the uh, people of 1834 of the, the upscaling, the secession, and other people of the Dolayansi of 1886, they all became emigrants to this country and they merged together in uh, the Christian Reformed Church here and the Christian Reformed Church flourished for a while until finally they, uh, uh, eight, in 1924 came and corrupted the whole Reformed doctrine uh, so that we became Protestant Reformed and that's the way it is today. And in the old country, beloved, in the old country, I don't have any hope. I don't have any hopes of the old country. Not anymore. Uh, if, uh, if the reformed churches, the reformed churches of the Netherlands can hail a man like Billy Graham from this country, a modern moralist, really. At best, a downright Armenian. Armenian. And if the Reformed papers of the Reformed churches in the Netherlands can write piously, let us prayerfully await his coming, will agree, mind you, then I cannot see what hope there is for reformed churches in the old country, if that is the situation, and that is so. Well, in the light of all this, beloved, I say, in the light of this first part, I say, not those that preach, God promises every one of you salvation if you believe. Not those uh, that preach a general 
conditional promise on the part of God to all. No more than those that maintained in 1924 that God offers salvation to everyone on his part by me. But those that maintain absolutely sovereign election and sovereign reprobation stand four square on the basis of the reformed truth and on the basis of holy writ. We are the reformed church. Or if you please, the Holy Spirit has led us. Christ has led us in such a way that we are maintaining the truth of God's sovereign grace unconditionally and wholeheartedly. And that is our calling. It's not our calling to become big. We should not become big anyway. It's not our calling to expand in numbers. That's not the question. The question is, will we, we remain faithful to the truth which God has led us to believe without compromise? That's our calling. Let's maintain it. Oh, there were but very few moments in the history of the church, very few periods, when the church stood for prayer on the basis of the truth. There was Augustine, and Augustine was an influential man. He was regarded as a man of wisdom and knowledge, a great theologian, and uh, the church respected him. And as long as he lived, uh, the truth of predestination at least was adopted in the church. But even during his lifetime, there were many opponents already. As I said, men like Foster and men like uh, Julian, and others, Celestius, for instance, they opposed them. And there are all kinds of arguments to which I will call attention presently to oppose the doctrine of Augustine. And Augustine defended himself in many, many epistles and many writings. But even his disciples, even those that followed him already during his lifetime, had many questions. Many questions, questions uh, that already showed that they were not so sure of the doctrine of election and approbation. And after Augustus' death in the Synod of Orange in 531, one century after the Synod of Ephesus, where Pelagius was condemned, the Synod of Orange adopted the doctrine of semi-Pelagianism which is really Pelagianism camouflage. 
and Samothelitianism became the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. There was one only lone figure, a figure that lived in the ninth century, in the year 800 and something. That figure was Gottschalk. He maintained still the Augustinian doctrine of election and reprobation. And the result was that they accused him and accused him and finally they took him in prison and jailed him and let him rot in prison till the day of his death because of the truth of predestination. Then of course you have Calvin. And soon after Calvin you have uh, the uh, departure on the part of the Arminians. And although although the uh, the Synod of Dordre condemned the Arminians, and although uh, doctrinally uh, the uh, Reformed truth had the victory in the Synod of Dordre, uh, nevertheless Arminianism had already gained a tremendous influence in the old country in the uh, first part of the uh, 16th and 17th century. No question about that. You know, uh, the Synod of Dordrecht chased the Armenians out of the country. Obur of Athens, Ebersheid, and Lachazet. 200 at the same time. But that does not help. That's not the question. It's not the question whether you can finally perhaps uh, condemn and chase out the uh, heretics. Uh, they uh, have their influence and uh, their doctrine eats like a canker anyway. makes no difference. But uh, that was also the case in the uh, 17th and 18th century, beloved. The Armenians finally, uh, the, the Reformed churches became weaker and weaker and finally there was nothing left until the cock came and, and Kerber came and uh, there was a little awakening of the Reformed truth. But in general, we, you may well say that uh, the, uh, uh, the periods uh, when the Reformed truth flourished in the church were very few and very brief. Augustine, Calvin, Synod of Dordrecht, the Koch, Kuiper, and that was the end of it. And we are the Protestant Reformed churches maintaining unconditionally the doctrine of election and approbation and the sovereign grace of God. Let us maintain it to the very end, beloved. Let's not camouflage it. Beloved, if we do not want this doctrine, don't go along with us. I'm not here to make converts. If you do not want the sovereign election and approbation of the sovereign grace of God, if you want to maintain the heresy which is condemned by our churches again, that God promises salvation to every one of you if you believe and that your act of conversion is a prerequisite 
to enter into the kingdom of God. If if that is your doctrine, uh, don't uh, don't uh, join our churches. Stay away. Stay away. We don't look for a crowd. We look for purity of doctrine. That's our only aim. Don't you see? In the midst of a a pastatizing world, in a pastatizing church, we look for strength in the truth, not in numbers. The church does not go by the pound. It's not a fish hatchery. The church is the gathering of the elect believers and their children. And we must have the church. The church. We must maintain as Protestant form believers. Above all, the doctrine of the church. We must not first confess, beloved, in our Baptist form that we believe that our children are sanctified in Christ and therefore regenerated from infancy. And then later on speak to the church as if they never are. That has been my experience as long as I, as I was in the ministry. People like our ministry. People do not, people do not like the truth. The strict truth, the pure truth of the Word of God, they don't. Don't you see? If, if my, the one that was my fellow pastor in the first church had understood, had maintained the doctrine of the church as it is in, implied in the Baptist form, that he could never have said to the, to the church as if, as, as, as if it were a crowd, he could never have said to them, God promises every one of you salvation if you believe. You cannot say the children are sanctified in Christ from infancy and they say later to them, you must believe. Faith is a condition, otherwise you cannot be saved. I had that experience all my ministry. Maybe the Maybe that's more fundamental than anything else. The doctrine of the church, the, re- the reformed conception of the church, that's probably more fundamental than even the doctrine of predestination, although the two are intimately connected, of course. That's what I had to fight in 40th Street. And how? Same thing the first year. Wherever I came, I preached the doctrine of the church. I preached the reformed doctrine of the church. I asked them, when they are children baptized, whether they believe the doctrine that was maintained here in this particular church. I accepted that they believed when I asked them the question whether or not they believed that the children are sanctifying Christ. I accepted that they believed that. But they didn't want it. The more I preach the doctrine of the church, the more I maintain the doctrine of the church, the more opposition I got to the family of the blessed. 
I remember very well. I told that story, I think, in my other lecture, too. I remember very well I, my first year family visitation. And from house to house. And always the same story until I was almost too tired to, to sleep at night. I came by one man and I said to him, I know he would say no. I said to him, uh, Mr. Vector was his name, uh, L was his first name. I said, L, you uh, uh, get benefit of uh, like my preaching? Almost. No, I know he would say that. I was used to that. I said, you don't, L, what, uh, what do you want? Oh, he says, I'd like to go to the old invitation. To go to the old invitation, huh? He says, Al, suppose I asked you over next Sunday night. No, I said to him, uh, first of all, I said to him, are you in the kingdom of God, Al? May you believe that you are in the kingdom of God? Oh, yes, he says, I'm in the kingdom of God, sure. He says, all right, Al. Now suppose I asked you over next Sunday and you drink a cup of coffee and I give you a cigar and I say nothing else to you and then uh, L, uh, come in, come in, come in. What would you say? Oh, he says, I think you were crazy. Yeah, I think so too. That's what you want me to do with you? You are in the kingdom of God and uh, you want me to say, come in, come in, hear the gold hold the invitation and that you want? That's what you want? Oh, he said, yes, but there are, there are others. Oh, are there? Are there others? Others in the church, according, according to your confession, you may, don't mean the heathen, you mean the church? Uh, besides, uh, you, uh, do you listen for others or do you listen for yourself? But it didn't happen, of course. The whole thing was that they didn't want it. You can't... Uh, uh, change people, you know, except by the grace of God. And my experience is too uh, that people that love the Lord Jesus Christ, though they are temporarily unmeaning, when they hear the truth of the sovereign grace of God, uh, they will be converted, but others will leave. And that has been my experience all the time. And that is fundamentally the question now. Fundamentally, more fundamental, underlying all the other aspects of our controversy is the question concerning the church. The church. The question of the Baptist form. That's the question. Let's maintain it. And in the history of the church, there will always be the same argument. You know, the same arguments will be formed. I must quit. Those arguments are the same as they are, they are today. The same arguments. The same arguments, the same Armenian arguments that are uh, adduced by the Synod of 1924. The same Armenian arguments outside of the scriptures are the same arguments that are opposed to the doctrine of predestination and the sovereign grace of God and the, the total depravity of man in connection with it all 
throughout the region. You know those items. A few texts they have, and those few texts they always come with, those few texts are uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often have I desired to gather thy children under my wings as a hand gathered the chicks and you would not. That one. Another is uh, Timothy. God will that all men shall be saved. Another is Ezekiel 33:11. As I live, said the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but therein have I pleasure that the wicked return from his evil way and live. The few texts. Uh, perhaps they add to this as, uh, in fact, uh, they already added to this uh, string of text in our, in, no, not in our own church, but by those that have departed from us, John 3.16. If we do that too. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those texts. And those texts, of course, don't hold water. And the moment they don't keep them so very long, they don't maintain them, they, they're not based upon any uh, sound exegesis, and so they soon abandon them and uh, release them. And then they come with other arguments, philosophical arguments. Uh, they are also the same. The same uh, as they uh, argue against us today. A man is not a stock of block. That's one thing. Ever hear that? Ever hear that? Man is not a stock of block. No, beloved, man is not a stock of block. But listen, he's much worse. He's much worse. A stock of block lies there and that's the end of it. A stock of block can do nothing. That is. Can do nothing. But the sinner could do something. He could perform iniquity. He's an enemy of God. He's darkness. In his mind, profession, in his will, corrupt in his heart. And he's active. Those who are active. He hates God and he hates his neighbor. And he destroys the truth of the word of God. That's what he does. A stock of blood. No, not a stock of blood. But he's evil. Man is not a stock of blood. But they don't mean that, beloved. They mean man could do something yet. Could do something good yet. That's what they mean when they come with that argument. A man is not a stock of blood. They mean he can accept Christ. Oh, he, he can at least pray. He can pray. This was the one minister who was a member of my church in Eastern Ireland. Came to me once. Uh, he had a son that was an unbeliever. He still is, I think. And he told me, you, you must tell uh, so-and-so to pray. Tell him to pray. Tell him to pray. Tell him to pray. If he prays, he's saved. How can I tell him to pray? He said, if he prays, he's saved. Oh, he said, but uh, uh, Dr. Bates uh, came to him and said to him once, uh, 
I'll give you a box of cigars. I'll give you a box of uh, dustmasters if you pray for a whole week. I don't know whether he did it or not, but he was never converted. Even with that box of cigars. Never was. But that's what they mean. Man is not a stock and block. He can pray. He can, he can desire the bread of life. He can, he can come to Christ and so on. If you only invite him. If you only invite him. You only say to him, come, 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 come. Then he come. That's what they want. Exactly that. Also with that argument. Now, beloved, if you want that, don't join the process of church ever. Don't. Don't. Go. Much better. We want to be good. Other argument is, oh, you, uh, you make God the author of sin. Don't you see? God the author of sin. Yeah. God is the author of sin. That's all. Because, beloved, God, uh, author, author really means actor. Author is actor. And to say that God is the author of sin means that God commits sin. That's what she had. God is the author of sin. Because we believe that God uh, in his sovereign predestination, in his election and reprobation, determines all things, even the devil and his host. Therefore, God is the author of sin. We say, of course, no. God forbid. We do not say that God is the author of sin. I just say not. God is not the author of sin. But this is the truth. God wills that sin should be there in his eternal counsel. God willed from eternity that sin should be there in order that he might show his hatred of sin. That's why God willed sin to be there. And that he might overcome it and over against sin give everlasting life to his elect. That's why the devil is there, and that's why sin is there, and that's why the devil uh, makes sin and is the sinner, and that's why man makes sin and is the sinner, but all under the counsel of God. Oh, don't forget, another argument they have forever, forever on the tip of the tongue is this, you deny the responsibility of man. Have you heard that, beloved? Don't forget that's not an argument against the Protestant Reformed churches, although it is again by those that don't want it. That's, that's an argument against all Reformed people. Always had been. You deny the responsibility of man. And if you ask them, what do you mean by the responsibility of man? Uh, they have no answer. They don't know themselves what the responsibility is. But you know what you must say when they come with that uh, old argument? You must say this. Responsibility is to respond. To respond to God. That's responsibility. Responsibility is the ability to respond to God. And that ability to respond to God, both the righteous and the wicked have, as moral creatures. They all respond to God. And the wicked say no to God. That's the responsibility. They say in their wicked heart and wicked mind, they always say no to God. And 
those that are redeemed by Jesus Christ have the highest possible responsibility and they always say yes to God. Yes, 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 Lord. That's what they say. That is responsibility. You tell them that, will you? And then they will have no argument left. We deny the responsibility of man. Shame on them. But I would say, beloved, shame. Shame on the Protestant Reformed churches. No. Shame on those that used to be in the Protestant Reformed churches and used to confess the same truth with us. That now, 25 years of existence of the Protestant Reformed Church, shame on them that they now depart from that truth and must have nothing out of it. Shame on them. But at the same time, beloved, I say, by all means, we that want the Protestant Reformed truth, let's watch. Let's take that warning. Let's take that lesson. Let us watch. Watch over the pulpit. Watch over the consistory. Watch over the congregation. Watch over your society. Men's society. Ladies society. Young people society. Watch. Watch over your leagues. And the neighborhood of Grand Rapids, those leagues, especially the ladies' leagues, have been more corrupt than anything else. Watch. Do not have any leagues that have no supervision of the consistory over them. Watch. Watch in your individual homes, in your individual lives. Study. Study this, beloved. Study the standards of the Reformed reformed churches. Study the canons. That you may be thoroughly acquainted with them. Study them. That you know, that you know the Reformed truth. And pray daily that God may give you faithfulness and grace to stand for the pure truth of the Scriptures, for the pure truth of the Reformed Conception, sovereign grace, sovereign election, and sovereign retribution. Pray that you may be faithful to stand in the midst of an ever, ever more apostatizing church and apostatizing world. No matter how small we are, pray God that you may be faithful and stand even to the end. I thank you.